Octa Non Verba is a show that's raw and real, featuring hard-hitting interviews with people that live by the ethos of actions, not words. Marcus Aurelius Anderson is a TEDx speaker, best-selling author, veteran, and leadership and mindset coach. With this show, you get to join Marcus as he goes inside the minds and experiences of the world's most successful warriors, leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts. With each episode, you're going to get the philosophies, concepts, tactics, and strategies these leaders use to turn adversity into victory, to live an extraordinary life based on actions, not words. Now, here's your host, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. Octa non verba is a Latin phrase that means actions, not words. If you want to know what somebody truly believes, don't listen to their words. Instead, observe their actions. I'm Marcus Aurelius Anderson, and my guest today truly embodies that phrase. Tim Laban is a founding member of Modern Stoicism, for which he's the director of research. Tim is an accredited cognitive behavioral therapist working in the NHS and in private practice in the UK, and a lot of it remotely now as well. He's the author of two previous books, Wise Therapy and Achieve Your Potential with Positive Psychology. His expertise in Stoicism, CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, Positive Psychology, Philosophy, Compassion-Focused Therapy, Psychotherapy has informed his newest book, 365 Ways to Be More Stoic. You can learn more about Tim and pre-order your copies of 365 Ways to Be More Stoic by visiting timlebon.com. The book will be released in the United States and on April 4th, but you can get it now on Kindle if you pre-order. Tim, thank you so much for being here today. This has been something I've been looking forward to immensely, and thank you for your time. Thank you so much for inviting me, Marcus. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, this is going to be tremendous. And we were saying before we hit record how stoicism has become very much worldwide known now, but yet I think it's one of those situations where we mistake familiarity with knowledge or true expertise in the actual subject matter. So everybody's heard the term, but they may not know exactly what it is. And books on it, there are quite a few out there. Can you explain how your book is different than what a lot of the other books that are out there around stoicism are? Great question. So when writing it, I think I was thinking of what book would I like to guide me in my practical application of Stoicism? And, or perhaps what would I have liked when I knew a bit less about Stoicism? Because it's not necessarily aimed at someone who knows a huge amount of sto about Stoicism, although I hope they would benefit as well. So it's organized into short entries, which if I was doing a life coaching, a Stoic coaching session with someone, it would kind of guide them through the key Stoic ideas. So you can take each entry on its own, but what people have told me is that they kind of like to then read the next one and then the next one. So as you say, it's, it's out in the States next year, but it's, it's, it's already available in the UK. So I've been starting to get, get some feedback on it. So for example, we start off in chapter one with the dichotomy of control which is probably the single most useful thing that my clients tell me is really helpful for them and distinctive about stoicism. And we start off with almost a cliche, like sports coaches these days or sports people say, how are you going to manage? And then they say, I'm going to control the controllables. And it's good advice, isn't it? It's good advice for throughout our day, our day and for sports champions as well. So it's a good place to start. But then what we're doing is we're, throughout chapter one, we're giving examples of that and getting deeper into the, the philosophy, the real philosophy of Stoicism. So, for instance, we go on to the Serenity Prayer, which just takes it a little stage further because it starts to talk about virtue, the courage you need, the wisdom, and the serenity. And then we'll talk about the Stoic Archer, the idea that you aim and you can control the process but not the outcome. So you shouldn't be too bothered if you miss, although you might learn from the feedback. And then even in chapter one, trying to connect it with my own life and my own lessons I've learned from my psychotherapy practice. So connecting it with the kind of problems that people have when they come to psychotherapy or coaching and how in chapter one, dichotomy of control is relevant. So that's, I don't know whether that's answered your question partially. So one of the differences, you know, one of the distinctive things about this book 
is that it's the kind of book that you can you can dip into, but also each entry builds on each other. So you're in a kind of guided journey into the concepts. You're, it's also drawing on my own experience as a as, thank you for that very kind introduction. And it, yeah, I probably am as old as it makes me sound. Uh, <laughs> so I have got I have got over twenty five years experience as a psychotherapist and as a trainer, you know, a lecturer coach so so it's drawing on that experience integrating so it's a stoic book but it's integrating the psychology modern psychology and the philosophy and uh, you know the, the things that we, we learn in therapy another thing that i i must mention because she's been so great in helping develop this book is my my editor casey pierce so i used to think i was quite good at writing and could make things. Look, I wrote. I wrote a self-help oh, don't, book. Don't we all, right? <laughs> I wrote a self-help book. Achieve achieve your potential in positive psychology, and I thought that was quite, you know, punchy. But Casey, so Casey is, is the the edge of the book, and and she is she is just so good at turning kind of stodgy prose into something really relatable and 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 sometimes even funny. So I hope it's a joy to read for that reason, and also, of course. I'm an English man of a sort of certain middle age and Casey is, is younger and American and female. So I think that kind of, I guess that kind of toing and froing between the, those two perspectives. So sometimes I would write something and Katie would come back and say, yeah, but you know, I, I'm not sure if this will if appeal to, to all, all readers or, or you're not giving your readers quite enough value today. So then we'd, we'd come and adapt it. So that's some of the things that, that mean I hope it'll be a, a really instructive book, but also a really enjoyable read that will be useful in practice. It's nice to have somebody like that to bounce ideas off of, almost like a thought experiment to figure out how to better serve, like you said, the audience. And I also love this notion that you're talking about having experience because, frankly, anybody can regurgitate wisdom from somebody else, especially if that person that we're regurgitating it from is already process the material through a life of experience. But we're just sort of echoing the sentiment and it doesn't necessarily mean that we understand it or that we're living it or that we're putting it into play. And I think that's why, like when Donald speaks, when, when you speak, it comes from this informed idea because you've experienced it, you've seen it either yourself, helping clients. And then we start to see those patterns sort of emerge. And now it's like, while we still want to be present and be receptive to whatever it is, we have an idea, at least a, a direction and say, okay, is this under my control or is this not? Do I have it flipped? Do I think this is under my control, the opinions of somebody else, and it's not? Or is it something that's under my control, like taking action and I'm choosing not to? Lots of times we get caught up in sort of the semantics of those things. And that can leave us in, in a quandary, whether it be this idea of a New Year's resolution and people think that they're gonna change their lives. And you're, you understand too, it's, it's great. Everybody wants to change, but being able to implement those things from this kind of incremental idea to achieve something monumental is what takes a lot of time. And can I just take you up on the, on the new year's resolutions? Of course. So they're one of my pet hates, I think new year's resolutions, because what are they? They tend to be things not in our control, not in our control. They tend to be very dramatic things. And then after, I don't know, I can remember when I was, when I was younger, a colleague of mine saying, I'll give that to the end of January, you know, and actually it was, <laughs> I think he only had to wait until mid-January before, yeah, I can't remember week, what it week was. too, yeah. Yeah. And then of course, what do you get? You get discouraged and you get to think that this thing, you know, which might've been under my control if I'd framed it differently, wasn't under my control. So you get, so I've come into the, the habit, which I think is a better habit of doing New Year's goals, which are different to New Year's resolutions, because the goal, you know, we're talking about smart goals, aren't we? You know, specific, measurable, achievable, relevant with a time frame. And so try and make the goals like that. And then what I used to do was, was tuck them away in a, in a drawer and then look at them at the end of the year and be quite surprised at how, how well it'd gone. But also, I've been sharing my goals with a trusted friend of mine who sends his goals. And that's an idea that we talk about in, in, in the book, in modern psychology, they talk about accountability partners, which is a really great idea of having someone who you trust, who you can talk, who you can talk to about what you want, 
and whether you've achieved it. However, this year as an experiment, I thought, hmm, there's a whole chapter of 365 ways which could be relevant. So what I did yesterday, actually, was I worked my way through chapter four, which is quite fun. It's called Finding the Right Direction. It's got lots of exercises like the Stoic Three Ghosts exercise, which is from Christmas Carol, kind of topical as as we're speaking now in in December. I know it's going to be broadcast later. So for those of you that can remember their Charles Dickens or the Muppets version of it, perhaps. So there's Scrooge. You know, he doesn't want to change his ways at all. He's, but we look at him and we think he's a, he's a miserable old so-and-so. And he's visited from the three ghosts, the one of the past, the present, and the future. And it's the one of the future that really scares him because he sees himself, he sees his funeral, and he sees the funeral where there's no one present and he's got this empty grave. And that's what his life is going to be like. So the stoic three ghost exercise is three separate exercises to look at the past and a time when you were living better and what you can take from that, the present, and perhaps people who who you know around you now who are living better and what you can take from that. And the future, which is kind of a similar thing to Dickens and Scrooge, if you live your life as it is now, what are the risks? It's kind of a premeditation of adversity. Absolutely. And then what can you do about it to avert that? And I, I found doing that really interesting. And again, as I said, in the whole chapter, you go on a bit of a journey. You start off with the kind of traditional life goals. And then there's a kind of little life coaching session with Epictetus, which I had kind of fun with. Oh, love it. And, uh, you know, he's a kind of tough sergeant major type of coach tells it how it is and then it, it ends with the three ghosts exercise and then a, a letter to yourself and you can do this now you can email a letter to yourself to, to be sent in a month in a year's time or a month's time or whatever and again that's something that that I've, I've done myself and you know I forget about it so then as I said a while ago it used to be looking a drawer and nowadays I get an email that says a, a letter from your stoic life coach Beautiful. written in Epictetus's style <laughs> and it's quite a laugh so I don't like new year's resolutions I do like new year's goals and I think giving them a stoic twist makes them even the more powerful because then they're goals that are under your control they're in line with virtue and they're probably aiming at the common good as well yeah I love that and as you say new year's resolution the, the term in and of itself it needs resolve. It's something that isn't resolved. So we're already sort of framing and predisposing that to something that may not be positive or may seem daunting unnecessarily when it's a goal, it's something we are voluntarily achieving or wanting to achieve in the process to work towards. Absolutely. It seems more, there's less resistance, isn't there? It's kind of more attainable just by the very semantics. Absolutely. And the other part is there are so many people that will look and they'll say, there are these things that I need you to do. I need to have these smart goals. But then even though they know what they need to do, they know that there are repercussions, there's metrics, there's a time, ha- time hack to that, there's a deadline. Sometimes they are still stuck in that. What stops people from moving forward, even though this, they know that this is what they want, this is something that's going to help them, the people around them, their companies, their teammates, et cetera. What keeps them paralyzed in that place? So this is something that, you know, if, if it was a psychotherapy client or a coaching client, we would probably do some motivational interviewing type, type things which would be assuming that there was some ambivalence there. Right. So let's give an example. Someone wants to lose weight. Or let's, let's actually take, let's take a, a, the real life example that I use in the chapter on self-control, if I can. So the, the true story is that my cholesterol rate was, was somewhat high, somewhat elevated. And so... And yet I found myself, despite all my, as you kindly said, you know, stoic practice, I found myself through habit, still eating plenty of, let's be honest, as my wife would call it, junk. (laughs) (laughs) 
how could this be how could this be how you know uh, she might say to me in a less less uh, or more epictetus style ways you know tim how can you how can you be this stoic who's not eating like a stoic so to come back to your question there's ambivalence there's a sense that i know on the one hand that eating healthily is good for me it's in line with my values it's better for those around me but there you are you're tired. It's the end of the day. You know, there's something in the in in the drawer. You know, a little a little a little bar of chocolate. You know, you can almost taste that in your mouth. And before you know it, you find yourself having just oh, you, and then you rationalise. I'll just have one little chunk, and then one chunk becomes very Moorish. You know, or bags of nuts. You know, they're the worst. Very normal. You know, so you can tell I'm speaking from experience here. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> So how can this be? How can it be that despite, you know, we might set ourselves, I might set myself the goal of, of eating more healthily, sometimes it might not happen. So in motivational interviewing, what, what we would do is kind of acknowledge that there's, there are reasons to want to continue in this case to eat, which would be, it's tasty. I deserve it. Everyone else does it. It's not going to do me any harm, we might, we might rationalise. And so we put those alongside the disadvantages, which would be I'm almost certainly reducing my life expectancy. I might contract not very pleasant disease. It's not going to be great for those I love and care for if I am not there for them. I'm not going to be able to do all the things that I want to do in the rest of my life. And you put those two together. And it's a pretty much a no-brainer as to which are more weighty. So, so again, in motivational interviewing or indeed in, in the chapter on self-control in the book, you'd start off with doing a kind of balance sheet. What are the pros? What are the cons? So you come to your own conclusion about what is the best thing to do rather than have someone cajole you because then, you know, what happens then? It's kind of all that resistance comes through. Absolutely. That's only the first step, though, because otherwise it would be really easy and it, all, all diets, et cetera, would succeed. So in, again, in, in, in the chapter, I kind of thought hard about what the Stoics say about self-control, what modern psychology says about what can help with self-control. And I, I won't spoil the whole chapter by saying everything, every, everything that's in it, but just to say that it's partly to do with understanding the process. So if you like, the, the virtue of, of, of wisdom, real understanding, understanding the process by which we rationalize. So we kind of recognize those rationalizations and uh, arm ourselves with counter arguments. And also even the physiology of it, you know, to understand the physiology, you know, every time we have some sugar, then we kind of almost become, I don't know if it's almost actually, we start to become addicted but to it. So it's not quite as easy, even as, as just countering the, the rationalization. And there are other things like, so it does draw, we do draw on the wisdom of Epictetus in this case, who's got a lovely line about choosing the people you associate with wisely, and making sure you don't get too sooty, you know, covered in soot. Yes. You know, so again, if you're a drinker and you choose to associate with your drinking buddies, you haven't got a chance, really. So choose who you associate with wisely is another kind of tip. So there's kind of all kinds of reasons why, how with the best of intentions, we might not achieve our goals, but help is at hand from the ancient Stoics and modern psychologists. And just like you say, we're all practicing Stoics. We're all trying to implement these ethos and live them. It's simple, not easy, all of these analogies that we hear. And as you're saying, there are all kinds of cognitive biases that we have. There's this demand avoidance that can be created artificially, unnecessarily sometimes, if we don't frame our, our mind in the correct place as we move forward with the endeavor. Indeed. Absolutely. There's a million things I'd like to ask you, but before we get into even more of this deeper conversation, 
tell people about what got you interested in stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, all these things, because again, this is not something that you just picked up a, a copy of a book and said, oh, I want to talk about this. You studied it deeply for a quarter of a century. Shall I share with you something I haven't shared with, with other people? I would love that. Yes, please. So I could tell you the story that I've written in the book, which, which I, might, I might, might come on to. But the truth is that this probably started with my mother, who had quite serious, what we think of now as mental health issues when I was a kid, which deeply affected my family. And so I think looking back on it, she would nowadays be diagnosed with agoraphobia, panic attacks, depression, general anxiety. At the time, this was 1970s, 80s. She just said, you know, oh, I've got nerves. I don't know if you know that expression, but <laughs> that's what people yes. said that then. I've got nerves. And there wasn't a proper treatment for her. That's the long and short of it. Uh, there was this book by Claire Weeks, which some of your older listeners might, might know. Called, called something like Overcoming Your Nerves or something, which she loved. And I obviously wasn't her therapist, but I, I used to sometimes help her read this book and, was, and kind of helped her to some extent. That, I think, kind of primed me with two ideas. One was the idea that we've got tricky brains. We can all struggle with, with kind of mental health problems. And secondly, the fact that I could actually potentially help people. So I studied philosophy, not, not psychology. So I studied philosophy at Oxford, which gave me the idea that philosophy was something really practical or could be something really practical yes. and make a real difference. So I studied philosophy at Oxford and then in London doing postgrad work in ancient philosophy and also ethics. And then I, I didn't pursue my academic studies. I went into IT and enjoyed that. It was good fun, made a lot of lifelong friends. But then in my late 20s, I kind of thought, hmm, I'm missing. I, I want to make more of an impact. I, I want to kind of do something a bit different. So I, I studied psychology. I studied psychotherapy and counseling. And as I said, I think part of that was kind of probably unconsciously the idea that people like my mother really needed you know this was an important thing so i trained as a psychotherapist and then eventually did a specialist training in cognitive behavioral therapy because i'd come to the conclusion that this well i'm not the only person going to that conclusion this was where the evidence was that this could help people with mental health problems not to say that other other approaches couldn't help but cbt seemed to have the most evidence. And it also really suited my style because CBT, it's a very collaborative approach, listening to the client, you're trying to understand things, but you're trying to come up with really practical ideas. So it's not just listening. So if someone comes to me with CBT, I kind of in the first session, socialize them into, into it by saying, so it's first, you know, I hope I'm gonna be empathic and listening to what, what you're saying. But what we're really going to try and do is we're going to try and be like detectives and try and understand your problem in a new way and then come up with ideas which will draw on research that will help with your problems. So again, coming back to my mother, if she'd have been alive to, to do this, she would have had someone tell her about a panic disorder and the kind of typical thing that happens in panic disorder and then try and map it out to her specific cycle so that's what you're doing you're trying to map out what we call an idiosyncratic a, a very specific you know what's going on cbt tells us the map and you tell me what's going on in your case and we try and marry the two together and come up with a treatment plan so that's cbt which you can probably tell from the way i'm talking i love really and <laughs> and i do cbt i work in the nhs and that's what we do in, in the nhs is so i'm a special i specialize in cbt for anxiety disorders and depression so why stoicism you might well say you know why if you love cbt so much why get into stoicism i always felt from when i was studying philosophy that philosophy had had something important to add 
And I think that CBT gives the kind of medical almost diagnostic and treatment plan for people with psychological disorders. You know, they've researched what works. And I think, I think it's really important that people seek something like CBT or other treatment if they've got a, an actual psychological disorder. But what about the rest of us? you know, who may or may not have, have a, you know, because I think it's all a continuum the, in the sense that, you know, you can be depressed, you can be moderately depressed, or you can just have periods of low mood or demotivation. Stoicism, first of all, Stoicism was what the people that created CBT drew on. People like Aaron T. Beck and Albert Ellis, they read Epictetus especially and loved some of what they read and then created CBT, particularly on the idea that it's not events that affect us, it's our judgments about them, which I'm sure all your listeners are, are aware of. But they might not all know that that was, that was the sentence that launched the CBT revolution. Of course, CBT then, you know, gave it legs and did all kinds of research and added a very strong behavioral element to that cognitive bit. However, coming back to why stoicism, the people who are not necessarily the best versions of themselves, they may not have the skills yet, but they really want to be the best versions of themselves. I wouldn't necessarily recommend they go to CBT because CBT is rather disorder oriented. Uh, and then you'd probably go to a CBT therapy therapist and they would say, Tim or Marcus, there's nothing wrong with you. You know, uh, you're, you're subclinical, go away. And I know, I know therapists who would say that to people, which is a real shame in a way, because they, you know, they realize, you know, the person realizes that there's something up and they want to be a better version of themselves. So that's where Stoicism comes in. Stoicism is a philosophy and a toolkit that I think if it's understood well and if it's applied well, can really help us to both be happier and to live better lives. So that's what I love about Stoicism. It's that, again, that marriage between those, it's a holy grail, really, you know, who doesn't want to be happier? Who doesn't want to be, you know, a, a better person, a more virtuous person, as the Stoics would say. And sometimes we think, oh, gosh, we've got to make a tragic choice. You know, either I've got to be happy, or I've got to be a good person. And Stoicism actually says that here is a, a way that you can achieve both. I think that's a really powerful possibility. Yeah, they're not mutually exclusive in the least. As a matter of fact, they all dovetail, as you're saying, when we do them all correctly and everything aligns. And I also love that you discussed this idea about, so when I was in chiropractic school, I didn't finish my doctorate, but when we are differential diagnosis, first of all, as a chiropractor in the United States, even if you come in and there's clearly a, a mass in your lung, when I take an x-ray, like a Pankos tumor, I can't say it, that's what it is but I have to be aware of it so that I can refer you out to protect you, right? But having said that, they even explained to us, if you tell somebody this looks like cancer, to many people that word cancer, that becomes their identity. And many people, depression, that becomes their identity. And now what do they do? They reinforce it, they tell other people, look, I'm depressed, I have depression, I suffer from depression. And it becomes this very almost defeated I don't want to say victim mentality, but it's very much this idea of, again, it's out of my control. This is happening to me and I'm just sitting here absorbing it. And if that becomes sort of our default setting, now we're in this place where taking action or having any sort of ability to control anything becomes something that's just a dream or a pipe dream for us. Exactly. Strangely enough, I was just speaking to a client earlier today and without divulging any confidential information, what he, what he said to me, he was, we were talking about the dichotomy of control, and he was saying that he has come to understand if you try to control the things you can't control, you become frustrated and you can get that victim mentality. Whereas if you let go of those things and only focus on the things you can control, which is, of course, your, what you do and what your attitude is, your judgments about things, it's so empowering. That's what he said. He said it's so empowering and you get that kind of feeling proud of yourself, stoic joy even at being able to, to achieve things. So I think, I think that's a really surprising thing 
about stoicism perhaps because sometimes and i don't know i don't know how much this is true marcus these these days whether do you, what do you think do you think that the public opinion of stoicism has just changed because these days whenever i go outside of my little stoic circle people say oh stoicism oh isn't that all about you know just stiff upper lip as we say in the, in britain yes or i'll tell you something else that my wife recommended my book to a friend of hers so my wife is a hospital doctor and she recommended it to a friend of hers who is also a, a senior hospital doctor and this friend said oh that's kind of interesting i'll bear it in mind if i know someone whose life is in turmoil and of course it may well be that stoicism helps people when their life is in turmoil but the point is that stoicism can help so many more people than that it's not just for for when you're kind of really in turmoil so i don't know what do you think about about you know the public perception of stoicism do you think it's kind of advanced from stoicism just being about the you know repressing emotions and sucking it up and does it advance from just being for something for someone when your life is in turmoil i'm i'm not sure i'm really not sure what's your i, I concur i mean in the united states especially our attention span here has gotten smaller it used to be an insult to tell, to tell somebody that they had the attention span of a goldfish right eight seconds but in today's society especially with technology the attention span is smaller so an epictetus quote gets people's attention and they may like it or they may share it or they may quote it but again taking it into a deeper level how can i apply this right now that made me feel really good i got that dopamine oh, shit there's traffic I, again you just saw this thing now there's traffic guess what here's your opportunity here's your chance to apply this so very much here in the united states and the people i've spoke to even my clients internationally this idea of this helps you you know be the automaton and just move through everything but truly a, a philosophy is only as useful as it is pragmatic and the user is the one that's applying the tool so if that person is willing to say listen this is a preventative maintenance tool as opposed to i'm waiting until the transmission is completely thrown a rod and i'm off the side of the highway in the rain type of tool now you can get as much out of it as you put into it so i agree with you and it's just like anything else i i think we touched on this before that just because I've seen a, a clip of somebody or I'm listening to this, this interview, for example, or I read the book, that's only the very beginning. Like that is your, your first dip into the pool, as it were. And now you can take from it what you desire. Bruce Lee says to absorb what is useful, discard what is useless, and add what is specifically your own, which is very Marcus Aurelius, very Taoist, however you want to look at it. Having said that, it's about do we have the courage to continue these ethos? Do we have the idea to use this virtue? every time because there are always opportunities every single moment and if we choose to see those as opportunities then we're surrounded by lots of places that we can get better but if we're stuck in this place of feeling like man i hate monday i can't wait till friday you know my job is not fulfilling my relationships whatever it is now we kind of back ourselves into this intellectual corner and now if that becomes our identity we are no longer even able to step out of that simply because as you say the people that we surround ourselves with they corroborate that belief. If we say, oh, I had a really great day, they're like, hey, Mr. Optimist, can you keep it down over there? <laughs> and now, even if you had this like spark, it's it's gone. It's been stuffed out like a, a wet blanket on a fire. Exactly. And I like to even think about practicing stoicism at the supermarket, you know, because <laughs> hopefully at the supermarket, nothing terrible is going to happen. But, you know, someone could take your spot when you're trying to park. It may be that the the item you want isn't isn't available. So these can all be stoic tests. Have we got as far as we would like? But also stoic opportunities to practice the skills, you know, dichotomy of control. The what virtue do I need here in this situation? Can I notice those thoughts uh, might set me in the wrong direction and either kind of ignore them or, or challenge them? And those I think are the what we've just gone through there. Uh, so in the book, I took out something called the stoic elevator, which is the idea that you imagine an elevator and at the first level, you might have the dichotomy of control, except if you embrace that, that'll help. But then you can take it so much further. The second level is the virtues, the idea of just cultivating the cardinal virtues, especially wisdom, courage, self-control, justice, but all, all, all the 
kind of the the broader virtues like like kindness which we'd see as as part of justice for example and perseverance would be part of, of courage so if we embrace the virtues then we'll build on the dichotomy of control because we will be controlling the controllables in a skillful manner because that's what the virtues are they're just skills in living and then the third level i won't go through all of the there's five levels in the book but the third level it's kind of stoic mindfulness doing it in the moment being aware of the thoughts and judgments and taking a step back observing your thoughts identifying perhaps thinking traps like thinking something's under your control when it isn't blaming someone or blaming yourself when you shouldn't and then choosing a wise stoic response so these are skills and like any skills we need to learn them and we can practice them and then practice them for a day you'll get better practice them for a year and you'll get a whole lot better and they'll become more automatic and ingrained i absolutely agree and i've met a lot of people that are whether they be an Olympic gold medalist or a world champion boxer or whatever, their relationship to how they interact with this notion of adversity or hardship very much dictates what they do. And many of them, there's a direct correlation to how much adversity that they can endure and accept and then eventually work through and overcome that strengthens them and the amount of success that they can have in whatever their field is. And you know my story between being injured, paralyzed from the neck down, TEDx, the book about it, Adversity was a gift for me, but it only became clear when I had no other option and I was forced to really accept it for what it was. And you've talked about your past with your, your mother and, and how that kind of led you down this road. Can you tell us about a time in your life when you faced some adversity that you didn't know if you were going to be able to get through it, but yet once you were on the other side and maybe the stoic principles that you use to help you get through it, when you look back, you say, wow, that was an opportunity for me to really learn. And sometimes we need that hard lesson to really make us level up. Well, I don't know if I've been through what you went through, to be honest. To be honest. Well, adversity is not a competition. <laughs> That's fine. It's, it's, it's relative to us in the moment, though, right? Because it feels like it's so like overpowering. So at the time, this was scary. I mean, looking back on it, it you might say, so what? But believe me, it's something scary. But again, it's something that many of your listeners might be able to identify with. So weirdly enough, when I was writing the chapter on coping with adversity, I started to feel a bit ill and I took the COVID test and it had the red line and it wasn't the very first wave, it was the second wave. But that was kind of scarier because one of my best friends had developed long COVID. And so I, you know, I'd come across situations where this could be, well, it could be life-threatening, obviously, but it could be life-changing. You know, and at that moment, you just don't know, do you? This could be it. And I can remember having those thoughts, you know, and you start to catastrophize. This could be it. And then the more mundane thoughts like, you know, I'm going to infect everyone else in my household and they might get it. And I've got a book deadline and I'm not going to keep my deadline, which which came pretty close to, uh, to some of the other thoughts, because that's when you write a book, you become a little bit obsessed with, with, with meeting the deadline. So there you are, you're kind of sitting there, and you're not feeling well. And you know, people, listeners who've had COVID will know that it does affect your, your ability to think properly, and, and your mood, and your energy. And so I thought, okay, this actually is a bit of a stoic test. What would Marcus say if he was writing in his, in his journals? Or what would Seneca advise one of their, you know, Seneca writing his letters to his friend, we assume, you know. And just that detachment is really, needs to be the first step when, when, when you're really, really kind of up against it. And so I can honestly, honestly say that in this case, I did manage to catch those catastrophic thoughts and say to myself yes you've got covid but that doesn't mean you're going to get long covid most people don't get long covid yes you might not meet your book deadline but hey those publishers they're not that evil they're going to understand <laughs> and and it may be that it's just a a week change or two weeks change 
but most likely it won't be life-changing and it will just be a couple of weeks off or whatever. You can use the virtues here. You can use self-control, not to let the worry get away with you. You can use justice and wisdom to minimize the chances of you infecting anyone else. You know, stay in your room, wear a mask, wear a double mask, in fact. And the obstacle is the way is, is a phrase that can be helpful at those times. You know, there might be some good come out of it. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that the good would necessarily always will come out of adversity, but it might. And I think staying open to that possibility can help. And looking back in my case, I think, you know, I work with a lot of clients who have long-term health conditions, not, not, not necessarily long COVID, but all kinds of long-term health conditions. And so having that, so what, I mean, what happened was I had a week of lacking energy, not being able to do stuff feeling a bit sorry for myself, despite my kind of stoic stance, but not not descending into that real depth of, of low mood. And I can honestly say that that helps me become more empathic being in that situation. So it's so probably a somewhat better therapist, because as a therapist, so this is a little bit of a sidebar, but during the long COVID thing, that there was kind of a, a reinterpretation of the advice for what therapists were told to advise people because with some long-term conditions the advice used to be to do more despite not feeling like doing it so that's what we advise for people with depression in general you may not feel like doing something but then you'll just get into a, a vicious cycle of not doing stuff feeling bad about it having no energy getting more depression and that used to be the advice for people you know who, who, who had a long-term condition and didn't have any energy but the advice has somewhat changed now uh, depending on the condition and now certainly for long covid it was true that it was recognized that it's more like a battery that's run out and you've got to recharge you know if you've got no battery it's it's stupid to say just just go and do stuff because there's nothing in the tank so it's a quite a subtle difference between the situation where there isn't the energy but you can do stuff by doing something even though you don't feel like it and the situation where there is literally nothing in the tank and what you've got to do is you've got to rest and you've got to be compassionate to yourself and you've got to recharge the battery and then do things very gradually so to come back to my covid i'd kind of read that advice but this was now it was it was my own experience so in that uh, in that huge you know the first few days of covid you know, you can't do very much. And so you've got to rest. It's a great, like you say, it's a great reminder. If it's, if it's us, we want to be the exception to the rule. Or dare I say, even some leaders, they can give incredible compassion and pragmatic empathy, empathy to everyone around them, but not to themselves. I don't need that. I'm strong. I don't need this. I'm, I'm the leader. And like you say, even though the gas tank is going down, they're still all gas and no brakes. And there is no other answer for them. And these are the people that like you, when you'd say, listen, you need to step back. You need to cultivate empty space. You need to have intention behind this for those people. That's harder for them than to actually push even more. So it's a very, I don't want to say slippery slope, but it's, there's never like a balance per se. It's more about this capacity to adapt and be willing to read the writing on the wall, not only for yourself, but for those around you, if you're wanting to be able to do this long-term. Absolutely. There's so much in this book that I'm looking forward to getting in into you've talked about some of your favorite entries so this book is for basically anybody whether they are an experienced stoic or a person who's into any kind of philosophy a, a leader a performer anyone like that can apply these tools right now literally as you're saying they can read it and then if they somebody in the coffee shop looks at them with a, a judgmental eye or whatever you can just kind of let that go and it gives you that opportunity to start putting it into play and, and ingraining it within us so it becomes part of our moral fiber exactly and yeah, I do hope that it'll be useful for people who even don't know anything about stoicism as well. Right. Maybe they've heard the word, maybe, maybe someone has told them about it. As I say, I, I personally found going through chapter four helpful yesterday. So I'm hoping that seasoned stoics either help consolidate their practice or it'll help them give 
stoic role models. Can I can I actually read out an entry? Because there's one that I want to, to share with you. Because please, no, I would love that. Yeah. One feature that I think people might find helpful is so in the in the in the stoic literature, you know, there are there are examples of ancient stoics and you know Cato was often often trotted out. Actually, not that, not as many as you'd like of, of knowing exactly what they've done in their lives that are Stoic. But I was one, one that founded members of Modern Stoicism, which is a not-for-profit group that aims to research Stoicism, which I've been, been involved in the research, and also to run things like Stoic Week, which uh, it's a free course, usually every October and November, where people try to live like a Stoic for a week, which doesn't mean putting on a toga. It means, it means reading a bit of Stoicism, doing some stoic practical exercises just for a week. And we found that when we do the, the measurements, we got well-being measurements at the start and at the end. And we found that for many people, there's a significant improvement in well-being. So that's, I think it's very significant, actually. It's not just anecdotes. But what we found, we also asked for quality of feedback. And a lot of people say, hey, this has really made a difference and it's helped me with my relationship or it's helped me think about my job or helped me with a difficult child or parent or whatever. And so I thought, and Casey, the, my editor, thought as well that, hey, why don't we, why do we ask some of these modern Stoics if they'll be kind enough to share some of their Stoic success stories? Because then they'll be real-life exemplars of Stoicism in action. And again, this is an idea that the ancient Stoics talked about, look for a, a role model. And I was thinking, well, you know, Cato would be a great role model, but, you know, I don't know, sets a little bit of a high bar, you know, you kind of think kind of that, that Cato did. Yes. So what about just people, people we know? What about us? So I put some examples, like that example of me managing COVID, COVID is, is one of the examples. Casey talks about, the way that she managed to to lose lose weight to diet successfully using stoic stoic ideas and so we use some of our own examples but also we use some examples from stoic literature but also we've got a lot of examples from modern stoics and they're just little case vignettes so i'd like to read one of my favorites if i, if I might oh please please right from the right from the author's mouth everybody listen up this is number 82 and it's on Stoic Forgiveness, is, that's the title of it. And it's from John Harlow, who is a, a young Stoic. He's in his 20s. He was in his early 20s when this happened. And he was very into caving. That was his hobby. And he would go into caves with fellow cavers. And these were, to, give, to set the scene, you know, we might think of going into caves as, you know, on the seaside. But this was like deep down into the earth's crust, you know, using ropes and goodness knows what, wow. where you're completely cut off. There's no cell reception. But what you do do if you do that is you do tell people, if you don't hear from me within 12 hours, then come and rescue me. And that's important to this story. So you might guess what's going to happen. <laughs> so this is a story. <laughs> Climbing vertically up a a rope out of one of Britain's deepest caves, I found another party had accidentally pulled up my rope, leaving my partner and me stranded 50 metres below the surface. Waiting for rescue, 12 hours, in miserable conditions, I found comfort in stoicism. We considered what a good and helpful reaction might look like in our situation and avoided casting judgments on our sensations of hunger and cold. That simple reflection certainly helped during our 12-hour wait for rescue in the mud. Once out, however, Stoicism helped me forgive the individual who had pulled up our rope. He was deeply sorry for his mistake and determined to ensure it never happened again. Without Stoicism, I might have judged his past actions and not his character. So I love that story because there you are deep in trouble and it's how stoicism could help at the time with, okay, I'm hungry, but it's just a sensation. It'll pass, all those kind of things. But I think more significantly for John was afterwards without stoicism, this would have been unforgivable. 
And we could think of it, you know, that is kind of the normal reaction, you know, stupid person, how could I have done such a thing? I'll never forgive him. But almost like Marcus Aurelius in the meditations, 2.1, one of my favorite passages, people are going to do this stuff, but yes. they do this because they don't know any better, essentially. Or in this case, he'd done it by accident. So I shouldn't turn away from them. We're all in it together, all fellow human beings. And it's about forgiveness, which I think is lovely. It is. It's like you say that the intention behind pulling the rope up was not diabolical in any stretch of the imagination. And again, as Aurelius says, how that you will meet people like this, people like this today, like he talks about their nature. They may not be aware of it or they're doing it for other external necessity that we have no idea about. And if that's the case, then what we do is just dissect the person from that, look at the action and say, this action is inanimate. There's nothing there. It is neutral. Therefore, how am I going to respond? All these things that we know and all these the things that we've learned is epictetus your favorite stoic if you were to claim one as your favorite oh, that's us asking about your favorite child i isn't know it? it's impossible i know can i hedge my bets there of course. and i'm gonna go for each of the big three and insert for certain things right okay so i've already told you my favorite favorite passage so there are passages in in, in the meditations like 2.1 which i think that is so deep you know, there's just so you yes. can read it at a very surface level as just, uh, you know, okay, there's going to be annoying people, but also, you know, it's all the layers of stoicism are there if you if, if you look for them. So I love Marcus for his kind of, yeah, he knows he's not a perfect human being. He knows he's just trying to be the best version of himself. And obviously, well, we assume that meditations wasn't meant for public consumption. So it's just how it is. And it's how it's so so I think, we can really take take solace from that, that here is someone, the most powerful person in the world at the time, who's laying bare his soul and just trying to be a better version of himself. However, Epictetus, I, I kind of have a love-hate relationship with Epictetus, actually, because he could be the sergeant major. And if you kind of read him and you're kind of kind of in the wrong mood, it's, you know, yeah. who is this holier-than-thou person <laughs> telling me? You know, what's, what's Epictetus like on a bad day? You know, we don't know actually what Epictetus was like. I'd, I'd love to have known, you know, I'd love to be following him around and, and saying, hey, Epictetus, what <laughs> <laughs> about what you're saying there in discourses? But I do love Epictetus because he is the more, the most, in a way, the most therapeutic one who inspired CBT. And in that sense, I, so I draw on Epictetus a lot in parts of the book. but. Seneca as well, because I so appreciate his essay on anger and on the shortness of life. And so there's two chapters, basically, which are kind of uh, my take on those two chapters. So I really like, like all of those popular Stoics. And I think, I think you go to each of them for different purposes. Agreed. And, and that's what I, uh, again, Having these, this knowledge is fine, but wisdom that is acquired and unutilized is the equivalent of ignorance. If you learn these things, but then are not willing to at least become aware of them or be present enough to be able to deploy them when you need them the most, then then why are we doing it other than to just try to feel good for this moment? And again, if you're in the beginning of your your philosophical journey, I know that a lot of younger people, especially in the United States, um, some of them see philosophy as something like a drudgery or it's a humanity that's a requirement, or maybe it's not as exciting because it's sort of forced down their throat to say, okay, you have to look at this, you have to look at this, blah, 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 blah. But if you look at any areas of, of logic, if you look at anything in everyday life, you can apply this probably multiple principles to it. Like you said, Epictetus with his background in slavery, having to learn how to get through the day with these principles. Again, Marcus Aurelius meditations was never meant to be seen by millions of people in all these different languages. So this shows us really a, a cross-section into their soul in the process and the heat of adversity. And that's when we need it the most. That's when we have to be able to, to say, okay, take myself out of this, detach for a moment, look at this logically, and start putting some of this stuff into play if we want to truly be able to, to get to that next place. And I like to think of the joy of Stoicism. Oh, yeah. The joy of stoicism. That's an entry yes. called the joy of stoicism. One of the most surprised, I talked about the research we've done in, in modern stoicism. And one of the most counterintuitive findings is that when we, we do correlational studies, so we give people 
uh, questionnaires about how stoic they are, and then questionnaires about how how happy they are or how flourishing they are or what emotions they have. And one year we did it with a whole load of character strengths, lots of research in psychology on character strengths. And, and we were really interested in what character strengths were positively associated with stoicism, if there were any that were negatively associated. So does stoicism actually make you worse in some ways? And which strengths would improve the most when people had been stoic for a week? And what we found is there's three real findings, three headlines from this. One was that none of the strengths were negatively associated with stoicism or were depleted by stoicism. So being stoicism doesn't make you more pessimistic. It doesn't make you more negative. It doesn't make you lower your mood. So, you know, so if people think stoicism, it's going to make me grouchy or dour or something, it's, it's not, the evidence doesn't suggest that. Number two finding was that character strength that was most positively associated with stoicism was zest, which is amazing because it's not at all the, you know, what people think. So zest means being energetic, being enthusiastic. And that was the one that came out even above things like perseverance and wisdom and courage, which all came up very highly. And then when we we thought, well, that might be a fluke. So let's, let's see which character strength improves the most, increases the most after a weak stoicism, you know, in stoic week. And that was zest as well. So there must be something in this. That, you know, it's something that we could do further research on, I think. But just the research we've got means that if you practice stoicism, you're probably going to be not just a better person, not just a, a happier person, but someone who is also more enthusiastic and able to take joy in your everyday life. Absolutely. And that's going to help those around you. It's going to make you a better spouse, a better parent, a better leader, a better teammate. And as you say, as these, these other attributes increase, we find our sense of humor increases. We find our compassion for ourselves and others increases. We find these things that used to be this huge adversity. We can look back on it and say, why did I make this out to be bigger than what it really was? And that's because, like you said, without zest, without taking this empowerment and moving forward, once we're in motion, it's not nearly as daunting. But when we're flat-footed, when we're stationary, and we haven't taken any sort of action, it just sort of becomes this cycle that we perpetuate. Yeah, and I think controlling the controllables is a big thing in that. Because if you get up in the morning and you hit your head against a brick wall, try and do things you can't control, you're going to be very discouraged, disappointed and fed up and pessimistic. If you're focusing on the things you can control, and particularly if you're doing it in a skillful way with virtue, then you're going to get positive feedback from the world, you're going to get positive feedback from other people, and you'll be more enthusiastic. So I can, I can understand how that is the case. On this, again, this is why we see some of the best entrepreneurs in the world. Tim Ferriss was one of the first people that talked about cognitive behavioral therapy from a very real standpoint for a lot of people that was their first sort of exposure to it so this is functional no matter where you're at whether you're at the top of your operating capacity or whether you're a person who's just trying to get through a sickness or hardship or a loss or COVID or whatever it is this is a plug and play application if you're willing to step back be very honest not beating yourself up but just saying no bullshit worse what's the reality and what can i do moving forward Exactly. Absolutely. Tell us more about your involved with obviously modern stoicism and then tell us about the other examples that you're with, uh, with Aurelius and all these other. So the Aurelius Foundation is an organization which is trying to get stoicism more in business organizations and also with younger people. So it's got kind of, it collaborates with other organizations like, like Modern Stoicism. So as I said, I'm in both. It's other people like John Sellers who are both. But and I guess Modern Stoicism would kind of be more, a somewhat more academic organization, you know, and provides things like, things like Stoic Week. And the Aurelius Foundation, it's really interesting how, because they've run things like well-being weeks within organizations. So, you know, you take an organization and you'd say, here are some stoic materials. We're going to meet up every day. Think about how we can apply that. And for me, that is such a positive thing because as we've said before earlier today, stoicism offers 
this marriage of happiness and virtue or in the business world i guess you'd think of it as being effectiveness and engagement so you want the ceo it enables the ceo to be effective in their job but also to be an ethically good ceo dealing people within organizations with with compassion and with wisdom so you know and, and again it's very different from the kind of a business ethics point of view where it's just kind of these are the rules you know you've got to do the good thing but that's going to cost you money this is a different take because you try and implement that kind of virtue-based approach and you it's a win-win and the other thing that so so Aurelius Foundation was founded by Justin Stead, who was originally a professional tennis player. And he didn't make it professionally. I think I'm right in saying, if Justin's listening, he might, he might disagree and say, hey, Tim, I ranked blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and, you know, didn't you see that match where I beat Pat Cash or whatever? I don't know if he ever did beat Pat Cash. But, you know, uh, he was a very good tennis player, but he didn't make it to the top echelon. So he's, and then he became a, a very successful entrepreneur with a company called Radley. And so he, he is a success story. But what he's very aware of is the young people who don't make it. So people who who make it to the nearly the very top. And you think about it all their lives, you know, as they're teenagers, they might be a top soccer player, for instance, in their, in their school, even in their town. And yet, you know, there they are aged 18 or 20 and they get called in at the end of the season and said, I'm really, I'm really sorry. We're going to have to let you go. And then where are they? Because if you think about it, they've had all these expectations. This is their identity. Yes. And then, you know, maybe they, they haven't concentrated on the studies. And so Justin was very keen, not, and not just for tennis players, but for young people in general, to think about what could be useful, what could be of value to them and thinking that the stoic approach, you know, so I think what Justin said is, you know, gosh, if I didn't know stoicism when I was younger, it would have really helped me not make some mistakes. And Pat Cash actually identifies himself as a stoic. And so Pat is part of the, you know, who many of your listeners will, will know as, as former Wimbledon champion, is associated with the foundation and talks very engagingly about how stoicism or the stoic approach, controlling controllables, trying to live according to virtues, both how it could have helped him more and how it did help him and is helping him, him now. So we've got the, we've got the connection with, with elite sport, we've got the connection with, with business, we've got the idea I think taking that business mentality can be a very positive thing, you know, and actually the stuff that makes us succeed in business, how can we use that to make stoicism better known? What will appeal to entrepreneurs, to CEOs? How can they make stoicism live for them? It's not just something that they, they read in a book. It's something that they, that they live every day. So I think that's a very exciting prospect. And so, you know, if, if, if your listeners check out the websites of both Modern Stoicism and the Aurelius Foundation, depending on, depending on their interests, the Aurelius Foundation, for instance, offers a, a course on well-being that's partly involved in. But also they've got a whole library of resources, of, of videos. You can see Pat Cash there. They can even see me talk of a talk on there if they, <laughs> if, they, if they can bear listening to me for any longer. And, and a whole load of other, a whole load of other people as well. So... Those are just exciting resources that, that people may not be quite so familiar with. Because I know, you know, people are very familiar with, with people like Tim Ferriss and Ryan Holiday and, and, and other people. But, but these, these are also people I think are worth, you know, the Euro Association, Modern Stoicism. Lots of, good, lots of good resources there. Absolutely agree. And I love that, again, Stoicism works on any level. So there's, it's not the survivorship bias where it's like, okay, let's look at all the people that are at the top of the game that have used stoicism, but look at these myriad of people that it's, it's failed. It's like, no, everyday life, it doesn't matter where you are, doesn't matter what the situation is or what your role is, you can apply these principles. And, and there are so many people that are doing stoicism without the knowledge that they've been influenced by it. It's by tertiary, somebody else's example, somebody else saying this, somebody else saying that. Again, in the military, if you have a 25 mile ruck march with hundred pounds on your back, it's like, you can bitch and complain all you want, but we have to still do, we just have to keep moving. So suck it up, embrace the suck, however you want to call it. 
But those are the times when we, again, we are controlling the controllable. And in this case, the distance we can't control, but how we apply ourselves in it, how we take each step moving forward is absolutely under our control. Indeed. Absolutely. Tim Lebon, we can learn more about you and all the things you were talking about at timlebon.com. Is that where you would direct us? Yeah, absolutely. So website, timlebon.com. I've also got a YouTube channel, Stoke Life Coaching, which I'm going to be putting little videos on, which can illustrate more examples of stoicism in action, practical stoicism. And there's even uh, 365 ways to be more stoic on Instagram as well. Outstanding. Everybody go follow those things. Go support Tim. I, I try to have only people of quality on the show. And I would absolutely say that what he's giving you is the very top quality. Support him. Go get copies of the book. And uh, Tim, I look forward to talking to you again in the future soon. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Okta Nonverba. If this message resonates with you, please share it out with others on social media. Hit that subscribe button and leave a review for the show anywhere you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please go to MarcusAureliusAnderson.com and join his Okta Nonverba Inner Circle to get exclusive content, news, and information. Until next time, remember, talk is cheap. Live your life based on actions, not words.